19 to Psalm 19, I want to read the first part of that psalm, and then I want to read a verse or two from Hebrews chapter 11, if you want to put your finger in there too. Hebrews chapter 11, but first, Psalm 19, the first six verses that describe the way the creation points us to God, the Creator. Let's listen to God's Word. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens He has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming forth from His pavilion, like a champion rejoicing to run His course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is hidden from its heat. And then the first three verses of Hebrews 11. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. May God bless the reading and hearing of His Word. Does science disprove Christianity? You might guess that since this is a sermon and I'm preaching in a Christian church that the answer is probably going to be no, it doesn't. We don't believe that science is at odds with Christianity. In fact, we believe that the two dovetail, that ultimately there's no contradiction between the two. In fact, Psalm 19 tells us that, in a sense, there is speaking going on all the time in the world. There's the speech that the creation, in a sense, tells and declares about the Creator. And this psalm has this beautiful imagery about the sun and the heavens. It's like a bridegroom coming forth from his pavilion in terms of the sun going forth day after day, declaring the glory of God. At various times in history, Christians have found themselves dissenting from the accepted findings of contemporary science. In the vast majority of cases, sincere Christian faith and strong trust in the Bible have led scientists to the the discovery of new facts about God's universe. And these discoveries have changed scientific opinion for all of subsequent history. The lives of people like Isaac Newton, Galileo, Johannes Kepler, Blaise Pascal, Robert Boyle, Michael Faraday, James Maxwell, and many others are examples of this. Maybe some of you students have been studying their works in your physics class or your science classes. On the other hand, there have been times when accepted scientific opinion has been in conflict with people's understanding of what the Bible said. For example, when the Italian astronomer Galileo, who lived in the um, late 1500s and early 1600s, when he began to teach that the earth was not the center of the universe or the solar system, but that the earth and other planets revolved around the sun, and he was following the theories of the Polish astronomer 
Capernaus, who had lived before him, Galileo was criticized for that scientific view. And eventually, his writings were condemned by the Roman Catholic Church of his time. And this was because many people thought that the Bible taught that the sun revolved around the earth from what the Bible said. In fact, the Bible does not teach that at all, as most of us assume. But it was Capernaum astronomy that made people look again at Scripture to see if it really taught what they thought Scripture taught. Descriptions in the Bible of the sun rising and setting, such as what we've just read here in Psalm 19, merely portray events as they appear from the perspective of the human observer. And from that perspective, they give an accurate description. When the weatherman or the news reporter says that the sun's going to set tonight at, you know, 560 or 559 or sometime like that, you don't say, oh, that reporter is lying. The sun's not really setting. Why doesn't that reporter or that person tell the truth? No, it's just a manner of speaking. The lesson of Galileo, who was forced to recant his teaching and who had to live under house arrest for the last few years of his life, his, the lesson from him, it should remind us that careful observation of the natural world can cause us to go back to Scripture and re-examine whether Scripture actually teaches what we think it teaches. And so, there's been this interface between science and Christianity for hundreds of years. And sometimes on closer examination of the biblical text, we may find that our previous interpretations were incorrect. And so, that has been the task of the church throughout the ages. And tonight, we don't have a lot of time to talk about all of this. We have a Sunday school course that's offered from time to time that's 13 one-hour classes on this, and I'm sure that the people who teach that course feel like even that isn't enough time to really talk about all the various aspects of the inner relationship of science and Christianity. But I would like us to see three main points about the fact that science doesn't disprove Christianity. In fact, these are three points about that help us to understand the relationship of Scripture and science. The first point is this. When all the facts are rightly understood, there will be no final conflict between Scripture and science. When all the facts are rightly understood, no final conflict. When all the facts about Scripture are rightly understood, and when all the facts about science are rightly understood, no final conflict. Now, you probably can guess that that is only going to be fully realized in glory. That's the only time that when we'll fully understand all of God's Word and all that we need to know about science. But my phrase there, no final conflict, is taken from a book written by Francis Schaeffer in 1975. Schaeffer, in that book, goes through a number of different possible solutions for some of the questions that are raised about the Bible and science. And he saw room for disagreement among Christians who believe in the total truthfulness of God's Word 
but didn't always see eye to eye. And, and num- some of the areas that he mentions and discusses in that book are, the er- the, uh, number one, the idea that God created a grown-up or functioning universe, or the idea that there was a gap that's called the gap theory between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-3, or Genesis 1-2 and Genesis 1-3, and the idea that Genesis 1 is describing days of of a long time, of thousands or millions of years. And also the idea that the great flood of Noah's time could have affected geological data. Schaefer goes into those various ideas about how we are to interpret science or Scripture in light of one another. And his main point is this. In both our knowledge of the natural world, science, And in our understanding of Scripture, God's Word, our knowledge is not perfect. And so it should lead to a degree of humility and tentativeness about some of the things that we conclude. But the Christian can approach both our understanding of the natural world, science, and our understanding of the Bible with the confidence that when all the facts are correctly understood, both the scientific facts and the scriptural facts, our findings will never be in conflict with each other. No final conflict. I think that's an important point. Now, as I just said, we know that this will only be fully realized in glory, but... It should give us assurance and hope and confidence that progress can be made in this direction in this life. And as we look back over the history of the church age, we can see that progress has been made. And I hope that you can be firm in assurance about this truth and that this can give you a greater confidence and assurance knowing that we are assured that the God who created all things has assured us that there's no conflict between His creation and His, his Word that describes accurately and truthfully everything we need to know about the creation and about ourselves and about God. And so, the first point is just that. There is no final conflict between Scripture and science. The second point, though, gets into the area of about this con- conflict that we all see and experience in our lives. And that is this, some scientific theories, especially theories about the origin of the universe, seem clearly inconsistent with the teachings of Scripture. So, does science disprove Christianity? God's Word would say absolutely not. In fact, the Bible stands in judgment on any theory that rules out the God of Scripture. And I want to look at just two of these very briefly. One is all purely secular theories of origin. All purely sexual, uh, sec- secular theories that by definition rule out the possibility that an infinite personal God was ultimately responsible for creating the universe by intelligent design. You can see why I'm saying that that any theory like that is, 
by nature contradictory to God's Word, and we can be assured that ultimately it is faulty. There might be elements of truth of some kind in it, but ultimately it is wrong. But the other one that I want to talk about is the whole whole concept of theistic evolution. Theistic evolution, and it's possible that some of you hold to this, I don't know, but that's the view that God used the process of natural selection, Darwinian natural selection, to create life and more complex species over long periods of time. Theistic evolution says we want evolution, we want to believe the theory of evolution, but give it, um, give it, give it the idea that God is ultimately behind that. It's theistic. It's a, God, uh, a God-centered kind of evolution. Theistic evolutionists would hold that there was this evolutionary process that went on for millions of years, but that at some crucial point in that process, God intervened supernaturally in some way. Often they hold that He intervened at the creation of matter itself at the beginning, and that He intervened at the creation of the simplest life form, and then He intervened at the creation of man. Well, what's the problem with theistic evolution? The clear teaching of Scripture is that there is a purposefulness in God's work of creation. For example, when Scripture reports in Genesis 1:24, God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. When we read that verse... It pictures God is doing things intentionally and with a purpose for each thing He does. The Bible is full of that. Whenever it talks about God creating, there's intentionality, there's purposefulness. By contrast, though, this is the very opposite of the actual mechanism of evolution, natural selection. That that description, that process says that Mutations in life forms occur entirely randomly. They're just accidents. They just occur. So you need these long periods of times because these accidental random mutations take place with no purpose, with no purpose for the millions of mutations that would have to come about before a new species could emerge. So you have all these intermediate life forms with various mutations before a new life form or a new species comes about. And so there's a basic contradiction between the driving force of evolutionary thought, which is randomness, and the driving force of what the Bible says about creation, and that's God's intelligent, purposeful design. That's why theistic evolution really doesn't, uh, doesn't make sense in light of what the Bible says. I, to, to, to give a tongue-in-cheek kind of description of what a theistic evolution, and please forgive me if you're a theistic evolution. I don't mean to, to really make fun of you, but um, it's like this is how you would have to read Genesis 1 if you were a theistic evolutionist. Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, and after 
428,692,212 attempts, God finally made a functioning mouse. You know, that's how you would really have to have it read because, you know, God intended to bring forth a mouse. And it took a lot of, of creatures in between to finally bring forth a mouse. Again, that I don't mean to caricature the view. But theistic evolution, what I'm saying, seems to be at odds with the scriptural teaching of God's creative word bringing immediate response. For example, listen to how Psalm 33, verses 6 and 9 sound. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all their hosts by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood forth. It's very difficult, isn't it, to reconcile that kind of language with the idea that God spoke, and then after millions and millions of random, and by the way, how do you even have random mutations if God is in charge of all of this, but after millions and millions of random mutations, God's power finally brought about the result that he had called for. I just don't think you can reconcile the two. So, there are areas where it seems that the Bible does contradict various forms of scientific theory. And this brings me to my last point, and this is really the main point that I want to make. Whenever science attempts to speak to questions that go beyond scientific data and observation, science itself must become faith. Let me say that once more. Whenever science attempts to speak to questions that goes beyond scientific data and observation, science itself must become faith. For example, any view of origin of how humankind got here, of how the world got here, any view of how the universe began is a matter of faith. It's not ultimately a matter of science because science cannot observe that. It can, it can speculate about that but does not know. And that's why Hebrews chapter 11, which we read, says, and I think it applies to, uh, certainly we, it applies to those who believe and trust in the Lord and His Word, but it really applies to uh, anyone who has a view. It's faith that's at the heart of it. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. <clears throat> Whenever someone tries to prove a theory of origin, such as evolution, or when someone tries to disprove miracles by science, to say that the biblical miracles that we read about could not have occurred, for someone to say that and sit in judgment upon the miracles that the Bible accounts, they have really ventured out of science and into faith, haven't they? At least some kind of faith. Maybe the faith in this case is that faith that there cannot be a God by definition. That's the premise lying behind the conclusion that they draw. The problem is this. Science is only equipped to test for natural causes. It cannot speak to any others. I taught science in high school for two years, and our, our ninth grade kind of general science course that I t- taught a lot was a totally lab science course. 
and all the students would come into class every day and they'd have to do a scientific experiment and write it up in their lab book and bring it back the next day and they got tired of lugging those lab books and I got tired of lugging those stacks of lab books home to grade. But it was all experimental. And they would do an experiment in class and I'd walk around the class and they'd have their Bunsen burners out and they'd have their maybe, maybe um, you know, maybe an iron rod that they were heating up and measuring how much the iron rod expands and recording data about that. They were making observations about, about the natural world. Well, what if one of my students went home, wrote up their lab assignment and came back and I started to read it and they were talking about the procedure and everything. What if they said, I put the iron rod in the clamps I decided not to warm it up with the Bunsen burner, but I prayed, and I measured it, and boy, it just grew. What would I do with, I didn't ever get a lab report like that, and it's a good thing, you know, but what would I do with that? I wouldn't, as a scientist, have known really how to deal with that. You know, I would be trying to measure in an area that science can't address. You know, it just can't make observations and data about the supernatural. It's not equipped to do that. So whenever science ventures out there, if, if someone as a t- scientist says, I'm looking at the miracles of Christ, and scientifically I believe that they can't be true, they are venturing out of the realm of science into the realm of faith. And their hidden premise is, I don't believe there is possible a a supernatural cause. You see, they're basically making a supernatural leap of faith. And so science, by its very nature, cannot prove that no other causes could possibly exist. I like the illustration that Tim Keller gives in his book. He quotes Alvin Plantinga, a very famous philosopher. And Plantinga talks about the analogy of a drunk man, he says the argument of scientists when they argue about this and say that science disproves uh, supernatural causes is like is the argument is like the drunk who insisted on looking for his car keys only under the street light on the grounds that, that the light was better there. Now, isn't that silly? You know, plant plant. Plantinga goes on, though, to say, in fact, their argument would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys are hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. <laughs> you have to laugh when you hear that. But that's, in a sense, what scientists are saying. If, it's, if the miracle is hard to believe, well, it must not be true because we don't see the observable scientific data for it. Do you understand the point there then? Science by its nature can't discern or test for supernatural causes, and so science cannot speak to whether or not those causes exist. It's by faith that we know that the creation was made by the Word of God. Now, even many atheists cannot go to the point of concluding that that science rules out everything else, any other kind of cause. And they raise the question, can everything about human experience, can our conscious experience of life, can our, can our thought 
our thought life? Can our values, the fact that we value certain things like believing that genocide is wrong, can, um, must all these things be able to be explained by physical science? Some scientists, some philosophers would say yes. Dawkins is one, if you've read any of his work. That they would say, everything about our human experience is determined by physical causes. But what I'm saying here is even many atheists realize that that's going too far. And they would answer no to that question. They may not believe in God, as we would, but it is as if they cannot fully let go of something beyond the purely physical or beyond the purely scientific. And so even some of them in their writings argue against that extreme view that science by its very nature rules out any other supernatural cause. Alistair McGrath has an interesting view about this. He's got an Oxford doctorate in biophysics as well. But his point of view is that most unbelieving scientists are atheists on grounds other than their science. In other words, it's not science that has somehow caused them to not believe the truth of God. In fact, he says one of the most powerful influences, which we probably would agree with and know as well, is peer pressure. Our peer group and our primary relationships have a lot to do to shape our beliefs much more than any of us want to admit. And his point is that both scientists and non-scientists are deeply affected by the beliefs and attitudes of the people whom, from whom they want respect. And so it's not really a matter, most of the time he's saying, of scientists being atheists, if they are, because their science has disproven the existence of God. No, it's because of their already, their, their presuppositions about God. And in McGrath's experience, most of his atheistic colleagues, he says, brought their assumptions about God to their science rather than basing their assumptions and their beliefs on their science. Do you see what he's saying there? He's basically saying what John chapter 3 says about people don't come to the light because they love darkness. It's not because they logically see the some kind of breakdown in God's truth. No, it's because they love darkness. It's because they don't want to lose the respect of those whom they value the most. I think that's an important observation. Well, let's talk about miracles a little bit under this final point, because miracles do have a, have a large part in this. In Matthew 28, there's a, a verse or two that I just want to read, and I think Pastor York referred to this a week or two ago. And it's when Jesus is resurrected from the dead, and he returns to the disciples, and right before, and this is the account of when he gives the great commission. I just want to read a verse or two in Matthew 28, verses 16 and 17. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Now, we would all agree that miracles are hard to believe. It takes faith in the Lord, in God's existence, to believe these miracles that the New Testament records. But 
the fact that miracles are hard to believe is not new with modern people or with this generation. And we note here, it's very interesting, isn't it, in verse 17, that Matthew records that they worshiped the risen Christ, but he records this little phrase as well, but some doubted. What does this tell us? Well, just think of them. There they were with the risen Lord, looking at Him, probably able to touch Him, and yet they still doubted, even at that point. Keller makes the observation from this. He says, tells us a number of things. One is, this is an evidence, isn't it, of the Bible's truthfulness, because it it doesn't gloss over this fact. If you were trying to somehow write a book that was going to convince everybody uh, of your way of thinking, you wouldn't include the fact that people doubted the risen Christ. But also, he says, it shows us that people in that day are not essentially different from people in our day. We somehow sometimes have the idea that ancient folks were just gullible, and they would believe anything. But it was not any easier for them to believe than for us to believe. But especially powerful, I think, about what Keller says here is that this text is, Matthew's, is, is Matthew pointing us to the, the right response to miracles. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, and what's the response? When they saw Him, they worshiped Him. Miracles should lead us to awe and wonder and worship at the greatness of our God, not just to some cognitive acknowledgement that this took place, but worship all at the evidence of the working of God. And Keller goes on to say, it's interesting, isn't it, that the miracles Jesus did were always miracles that point to the final restoration of all things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He fed the hungry. You never saw Christ say to His disciples, Hey, look, see that branch over there? I'm going to make it get on fire. Pow. You just don't see that kind of thing. No, the miracles all reflect the fact that Jesus Christ was ministering in a broken, fallen world, bringing the truth of God, bringing the the outbreaking of God's kingdom in the person and work of Christ, and the miracles point ahead to that final and full restoration, which will one day come. And so, miracles point us in the direction, the same way creation points us in the direction of acknowledging and seeing the glory of God. Science doesn't disprove these because science doesn't deal on the level of these things. And I like the advice Keller gives at the conclusion of his chapter in the book as he gives advice to the skeptical inquirer, and he says, he says he acknowledges there's a variety of response, even within Christianity, to the question of the relationship of the Bible and science. I've briefly talked about it here, but we could say a lot more. There are various hot points in, in our day and age about w- what does the Bible say about this or that, where does it relate to science, and we could talk more about that. But Keller's advice is this. If you're wrestling with this question in your life, and you do have serious doubts about whether science disproves what the Bible says, don't think that you have to work 
through all of these issues about the science and creation and all this kind of stuff in order to face up to the truth of Christianity. His advice is, is first weigh the central claims of Christianity itself. Study the person and work of Christ. Read what the Bible says about Jesus Christ and what He came to do and who He said He was. He claimed to be God. Understand the Bible's teaching about Jesus' incarnation, that He came in the flesh, His ministry, His cross, why He went to the cross, what His cross accomplished. The Bible has a lot to say about that. His resurrection from the dead. Study those things. Immerse yourself in those things. And then, after embracing Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you can begin to go back and work through all the various issues regarding how Christianity and science interrelate. All of us are still doing that. Many of us who have known Christ for many, many years are still wrestling with various issues. And you will find disagreements even in this own room and in our church about questions about creation and, and, and what view you might have about that. There's certainly an intramural debate among Christianity about many of those issues. But your concern needs to be this. Am I right with the Creator, the God who created all things, my Creator, the one who formed me in my mother's womb? The Bible makes it very clear God did create us. And not only that, He has made redemption possible through Jesus Christ. And He invites us to come to Him. He invites us to call upon Him. He invites us to give Him our lives. Let's bow in prayer. Oh, Lord, thank You that You've given us such clarity in Your Word. And there are many areas that we would, we would like to know more. We wish that we could understand more the depths of what Your Word says to us. We pray that You would help us. Help us as we study. Help us as we seek to help others that we know who are wrestling with these things. Help us to seek You. And in all of our perplexities about some of these issues, that we would rest in You and in who You are. We can know that You are our God through Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen. Let's turn to Him.